Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hi, I'm Kirk Megu, host of New Books in Politics. I also host my own podcast called Independent Thought and Freedom, where I interview some of the most interesting people from around the world who are shaking up politics, economics, society, and ideas. You can find it in the iTunes store or any of your favorite podcast providers. You can also subscribe to my YouTube channel. Are you an academic who wants to get heard nationally? Then check out my free training on how to use your intellectual authority to do so at becomeapublicintellectual.com. You'll find the link below. And now on to this week's episode. My guest today is Rupert Lewis, author of Marcus Garvey, published by the University of the West Indies Press in 2018. Rupert Lewis is Professor Emeritus of Political Thought, the University of the West Indies, Mona, Jamaica. For 50 years, he has been a public educator on Marcus Garvey and the Garvey movement. He is the author of Marcus Garvey, Anti-Colonial Champion, and Walter Rodney's Intellectual and Political Thought, and co-editor with Patrick Bryan of Garvey, His Work and Impact, and with Maureen Warner-Lewis of Garvey, Africa, Europe, the Americas. Welcome, Rupert. Thank you very much, Kirk. Glad to be here. I'm glad to have you here. So, well, let's start off with the most basic question, which is, who is Marcus Garvey, and why did you write this biography? Well, Marcus Garvey lived from 1887 to 1940, and he can be described as the individual who developed a mass movement and the organizational framework in the Universal Negro Improvement Association and African Communities League, which gave expression to a variety of initiatives. Uh, initiatives such as this century, this the centenary of the 1920 convention, uh, out of which came the Declaration of Rights of the Negro Peoples of the World which was a comprehensive document that was based on consultation during a month-long conference in Madison Square Gardens, New York, of delegates coming from Africa, the Caribbean, the United States, Europe, to a genuinely collective document, not something simply out of Garvey's head, uh, but a document that preceded the United Nations Declaration uh, by which came out in 1948, the UN Declaration, by some uh, 28 years. So this movement gave expression to a post-World War I demand for sovereignty because hundreds of thousands of soldiers from a variety of places in French colonial Africa, British colonial Africa, 
German colonial Africa, uh, West Indians, people from the Caribbean, uh, people from the United States had fought in the First World War, 1914, 1918, uh, for their respective colonial territories. And they had been promised the right to vote, land, and uh, other civic freedoms. And when they returned from the war, there was no granting of uh, those promises. So there was a lot of disquiet. And many of those uh, veterans were active in national movements in their respective territories, uh, in Trinidad, uh, in Jamaica, uh, of course, in the United States, where the period 1918-1919 was a pretty fiery period of black protest, out of which came Claude McKay's famous 1919 poem, If We Must Die, which was a direct response to black unrest and upheaval against the uh, racism. So to, to, to summarize, Gavi became not only a public intellectual, but a activist on a global scale because the conditions after the First World War were such that masses of people were on the move and in turmoil. Those circumstances led to the Irish Rebellion, 1916, the Russian Revolution of 1917, and therefore we can see the Gavi movement as complementing those mass movements in their efforts towards sovereignty, uh, freedom of expression, freedom coming out of the racial uh, restrictions in all the colonial world and in the United States and in much of Latin America. Yeah, well, I, you said a lot there, and there's a lot I want to delve into. Uh, I certainly believe that Marcus Garvey is totally, totally underappreciated. The scale of his achievement, I mean, we, we'll speak about it. I mean, his organization had 5 to 11 million people in it in all over the world in 37 countries. It was totally massive, and it's, it's almost completely erased from popular memory. Um, certainly, it, it, his memory is kept alive in so many other ways, but, um, but I think it's a real tragedy and, and shame that, uh, that this achievement is forgotten. But I want to ask you, particularly about your book now, where does your biography here fit in, in terms of Garvey scholarship or Afro-American history or West Indian history? Who is the intended audience of this biography? Well, the intended audience really is the younger, a younger set of people. I am from the independence generation, and uh, I was asked to do this book to have it inserted in university programs, high school, uh, syllabi um, for young people to have access to. And therefore, the question which is raised in this period of technology was, you know, is a book an adequate way of getting to young people? 
one of the challenges um, that we face at the university is that there's a decline in reading. So it was felt that we could insert a short book. The book um, is 70 or 80 odd pages um, to encourage students to read. But in addition, there is going to be developed uh, an audio book, which people can read in their cars on their MP3 or whatever technology they have. So there is a, a struggle. This, the size of the book is an indication of the attempt to reach a large, young audience. So that's the objective, and it comes in a series uh, which is dedicated to Caribbean individuals who have made a significant contribution in their respective fields to, us, to, to cultures that are bigger than the Caribbean, and Gabi certainly fits that bill. Right, so I see that it is intended for a younger audience, high school, secondary school, university, but you are a noted Garvey authority, and so it's written by an expert yourself, and you quote other um, authorities like Tony Martin, uh, who's also spent, he also spent many years on the Garvey movement. So I, I think we can perhaps uh, talk about some of the um, the issues here uh, that um, perhaps in the book, you might not have gone into the fullest detail of it, but I think we can um, perhaps flesh it out a little bit more here. Like, for instance, I, I think in the understanding, especially in the United States, of the civil rights movement, it's almost as though it started with the Brown versus Board of Education decision in 1954, um, when... Really, there's a whole interesting struggle um, that goes on, you know, from in the 19th century, and then this post World War One period you're talking about, where Garvey was just a towering, towering figure. Uh, but I, I want to ask you to elaborate. Well, first of all, how is he remembered, and how is he misunderstood? Because, for instance, uh, a lot of people, if they if they even know the term Garvey, they say the Back to Africa movement. Um, so I'd like you to elaborate on that. Well, there are a variety of ways in which Gavi is remembered. I think popular culture uh, has been an important vehicle for memorizing Gavi. Although jazz music is not, you would say, a mass form, many jazz musicians have hailed Gavi as a source of inspiration. And certainly Bob Marley in Jamaica and the reggae fraternity have consistently spoken about Gabi, and that message has gone out. But in black communities in the United States, uh, a younger generation on Facebook and on Instagram have taken up the Gabi idea and are promoting the philosophy, uh, the ideas, the entrepreneurial initiatives of Garvey. So Garvey has been in the United States below the surface. And I want to give one example of the kind of transition that has taken place, particularly in the period prior to the civil rights movement gaining ground 
and the Black Power Movement gaining ground. In the case of Martin Luther King, there's an organization which was instrumental in King's work called the Montgomery Improvement Association. That was a UNI organization. With respect to Malcolm X, Malcolm X's mother was a migrant to the United States from Grenada, a light-skinned woman whose father, I think, was either Scottish or Irish in Grenada. The, uh, Martin, uh, Malcolm X's mother had, uh, her parents had been, it was a rape situation, and she grew up in this situation as a light-skinned woman married to a black man. Both of them were in the Garvey movement, both in Canada as well as in the United States. But when you read the story of Malcolm X, you are not getting that Garvey background. It was the Guyanese writer, Jan Carew, who knew the Malcolm X family, who ferreted out the information of Malcolm X's Garveyite parents, both mother and father, active in the Garvey movement. So there are stories that are emerging that younger historians are now finding that the subterranean impact of the Garvey movement on the more well-known Black Power movement and the civil rights movement, that subterranean movement was very, had a great impact. Another example I'll use is Malcolm X's father was a Gaviat, not, not Malcolm X, Stokely Carmichael's father was a Gaviat. So that the figures who emerged in the 50s, 60s, 70s had strong Gaviat roots. It's now that the research, the work done by Robert Hill in his phenomenal 13 to 14 volumes of documentation of the Gavian movement, that documentation allows us to understand a movement that had dimensions that are yet not fully grasped. Another dimension that is most inadequately grasped is the role of women in the Garvey movement. They were the strongest force in the Garvey movement, particularly in the period of its decline in the late 1920s, early 1930s. So that the, the significance of Garvey and his memory uh, may not have been upfront in terms of the mainstream activists who were highlighted in the height of the civil rights movement and the height of the Black Power movement. When Martin Luther King came to Jamaica in the 1960s, he paid tremendous tribute to the role and impact of Garvey. So there are hidden stories that are yet to be told with respect to the ways in which there was continuity between an earlier generation, a century ago, and the generation of civil rights activists and black power activists later on in the 20th century. Yes, I mean, and, I mean we're speaking about um, the sort of underground, hidden, influences the echoes and whatnot um, but you know in case listeners uh, have the wrong idea when garvey was at his height i mean 
it, he would have parades with millions of people, and, or, or uh, if, if not millions in the parade, but huge, huge numbers of people in the parades and so forth, and definitely all the businesses and industries. And could you just describe at its height? Uh, you know, it was a very public thing. It, it was not an underground thing at all. Am I right? Yes. No. 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 At its height, if you take a century ago, nineteen twenty. You are looking at a convention in Madison Square Gardens. You are looking at parades through New York of hundreds of hundreds of uniformed people. You are looking at a weekly newspaper called the Negro World, which had sections in French and English, French and Spanish, largely English uh, magazines. Uh, you're looking at a newspaper that is distributed in many parts of the world by black sailors. You're looking at a shipping line, the Black Star Line, that is active in the voyages between eastern seaboard of the United States and the Caribbean. You're looking at Negro Factories Corporation. You're looking at real estate being purchased to build Liberty Halls. And one should emphasize that in a mass movement, it is not, this is not Garvey doing all of these things. This is him as an organizer and as an influential person being able to affect people's behavior in ways in which people are empowered. And it is they who put their money into these ventures. It is they who purchase the Liberty Halls in their respective locations. It is they who make the UNIA, Universal Negro Improvement Association, African Communities League, the strongest in the south of the United States. It is activists who link with the Black clergymen and churches and establish a strategic relationship which gives Gavi a base in the real estate and in the communities where the church were dominant and where the Ku Klux Klan was a powerful force. So you're dealing with a very vibrant movement that has an international uh, outreach. Uh, it's there in Cuba. It's there in Costa Rica. It's there in Panama, those who built the Panama Canal, their families who remained there. It's there in the Gold Coast, as it was then known. It is there in Nigeria. It is there in South Africa. Uh, it is here in the Caribbean, Trinidad. It was quite a force, particularly in the south of Trinidad. It's here in Jamaica. So you're dealing with a very vibrant moment and a moment which agitated the ruling groups in the United States. They paid close attention, monitoring it, and therefore trying to ensure that its influence was restricted. The role of the British and the French colonial governments in banning travel of Gavis activists and in restricting the circulation of the Negro world. So in the colonial context where political freedom was restricted, this movement was able to penetrate the barriers 
and to give people the encouragement, give people the message that if their conditions were to be changed, it would not be changed through divine intervention. It would not be changed through colonial missionary intervention. They themselves would have to organize themselves and their friends, their communities, their families to envision and to build a new world. So there, it's a, it's a moment, therefore, of upswing where people's potential, uh, was, the potential was being realized with respect to communal and civic and economic goals. Right. Now, let's let's take a look at the even the very name of the organization. I think it's very important to historicize it and put it in the context. The Universal Negro Improvement Association, and then also the African Communities League. Is that it? The, yes, African Communities League. Yes, well, let's right. break... I mean, yeah, because I, I remember reading in the, uh, the, the Universal Declaration, the term Negro was used as, as a term of, of great dignity um, as opposed to colored of the time. And uh, I know that even Dr. Eric Williams, who was the pr- first prime minister of Trinidad and Tobago, he would cr- cross out use of the word black in colonial documents and insert Negro uh, it's it's only later today now that word has a negative connotation. But even in Trinidad, for example, it still has that old positive uh, d- overtones of dignity that that Garvey had put onto it. And then and then on the other side, you have the use of the term African, you know, in the 1920s. So why don't uh, you unpack some of that for us? Yeah, that's an interesting observation you made about Eric Williams' use of the word Negro. Yes, the word has become uh, one that has been limited to a particular period of history, but I'm glad that you pointed out how positive it was. That was a term that people used to identify their fellow citizens who were Black. Uh, The... The Negro National Anthem by James Weldon Johnson, which is a very beautiful in terms of its words and its music, again is an indication of the sentiment of that time. But I would like to stress the universal, because Gabe, I see universal as a globalizing concept, in that the universal concept was used by Gabe to indicate that the problems faced by Africa and peoples of African descent could not be solved solely on an island basis or even on a national uh, footing. There had to be a broad global response of people of African descent and connected to people from Asia because the Gavi movement was very much in solidarity with the movement against British colonialism in India. Gavi made sure to instruct Amy Jakes Gavi, his wife, who edited uh, Philosophy Opinions, to ensure that Mahatma Gandhi got a copy. 
and the acknowledged receipt of it, that, that copy. It was also a movement which saw itself as sympathetic to the Irish revolutionaries. And many people from the Irish nationalist movement, speakers, spoke within the framework of the Liberty Hall. The Liberty Hall, in any case, is a, is a concept that came out of Ireland. So there is a way in which you are dealing with movements that are interconnected with respect to the anti-colonial expression of all subject peoples. And this is what attracted the Chinese nationalists and Japanese to the Garvey movement. And there's a young Chinese scholar at Cornell University who is working on the evidence of China's and Japan's interest in the Garvey movement and how the Garvey movement was reported in Chinese newspapers and Japanese newspapers in the 1920s. Well, I, I can give you a little lead here that might be worth checking out. Um, you know, Eugene Chen, who was a, yes, well, he was a Trinidadian, but was very important in Sun Yat-sen's nationalist movement. So he may very well have provided some sort of link to Garveyism. Yeah, that, that's very much, that's, that's very possible, very possible, Eugene Chen. But let me come to the African Communities League. And that was the business arm of the movement, African Communities League. That was, the, that was incorporated in Delaware, I think, in the United States. And this was really focused a lot on trade between the United States and West Africa in particular and between the United States and the Caribbean. And part of the reason for that is that in the context of World War I, Africa-US trade had grown exponentially in agricultural exports from Africa. But African farmers felt that they were being cheated with respect to prices and so on. So there was an economic basis to the conception of the African Communities League. Garvey never, ever said, and there are several quotations in his philosophy opinions and in other writings, that he wasn't going to simply take all Black people back to Africa. He wanted to establish a headquarters in Liberia, Monrovia. And that would have been the base for his African initiatives. That was not to be because of the power of the United States, and in particular, Firestone Rubber Company that got land that should have been uh, sold to Gavi and the UNIA. And therefore, there was that huge block because the Liberian government in the 1920s had a debt problem in terms of how they were running their economy. And the perception of the Liberian America elite was that the UNIA could help. But obviously, the, UNI the American government, who had a great deal of interest in rubber and rubber plantations, because the automobile industry in the United States was developing rapidly, there is no way that the UNIA could compete with the United States power in Liberia. 
So and, and just to put it in the historical context with Liberia again, that's that's going back to an uh, initiative from the 19th century for uh, Africans to go and develop, uh, well, Afro-Americans and West Indians and to go to Africa to um, found a country and, and develop the continent. Uh, so so it, it's um, really linking up all of the uh, history of, uh, of the Afro-American struggle right yeah. there, isn't it? Yes, it is, it is connected into a, a wider struggle, in fact, uh, particularly in the 19th century, of uh, West Indians, African-Americans who went back to Africa to create communities. Uh, and that was what they wanted to, they, that's where they wanted to be. That's what they wanted to build. And so that community, those communities were welcoming of the UNIA who brought a, a new post-war generation as well as skills into the Liberian economy. But the big problem that we faced there was that the West Indian, the African-Americans, the whole American Liberian elite, and the indigenous population, there were tensions between those two groupings, which in later politics in Liberia turned pretty bloody with respect to traditional groups and the new migrant elites and their children. Okay, I, I want to add, I, I want to again put this in uh, the context because I, these are very very exciting times uh, after World War One in terms of political struggle that has been very much neglected in popular imagination and understanding. You know, th- there are so many movements going on, um, and and you very interestingly point to you know the Indian national struggle, the Irish national struggle. Um, and and then the communist movement was very big in the 1920s, and uh, and you you mentioned you know Garvey the Garvey movement's relation to all the anti-colonial struggles, and the communists were also um, part of that, but um, you know and and you were talking about the universal nature of it, but there was always a sort of tension uh, between. The communists and the Garveyites, uh, and um, and also the ideas of of racial purity that was important to the Garvey movement, and then it's um, it's being seen as anti-white in that respect, uh, and his his nationalism, and as you said, you know his uh, the, the importance of Africa in the whole process because he had this idea, uh, and I think it's a very important idea that if Africa is not um, free and prosperous and strong and respected in the world, uh, the African diaspora will not uh, be perceived uh, in, in that way either. So, um, and, and this was different from, you know, people uh, like Trotsky and so forth, you know, looking for world revolution and, and global governance. So you, you had, you know, so there was a lot of linking up and there were also a lot of differences and, and say the NAACP versus UNIA with W.E.B. Du Bois. So can you elaborate on, on some of these differences? Yes, the tension between the communists and the nationalists, between the Communist International 
that sought to organize the global working class, including the black working class, uh, as well as allies of that class, had a strong focus on the white working class. To some extent, the black working class was brought in when you had people from the, the American, the Communist Party of the United States, you had activists like George Padmore, who were designated organizers of the black working class. There was definitely a tension because the Gaviites emphasized a race-based movement. They were nationalists. They were responding to the consequences of enslavement, what that had done to millions of Africans and people of African descent. And Gavi was very clear that while class was a factor in global and national politics, the fundamental basis on which he was organizing his movement was on a race base. However, Gavi in the 1930s, in the period of the Depression in the United States, moved in the direction of class. Certainly in Jamaica, he was instrumental in organizing banana workers, for example, because the economic depression, the crisis of capitalism, forced him into understanding the importance of class. So that relationship between race and class was the pivot on which the movement, the, the distinctions between the Gaviettes and the communists uh, lay. However, I think there was a little element, and probably not so little, of racism among European communists. And this could not be helped because that was the nature of the global political system, how they were socialized. And black communists, such as George Padmore, wrote about these when he later abandoned the, the communist movement out of principle, out because he felt that Stalin was not paying sufficient attention to the African uh, workers, to black people, because of the negotiations that were taking place in Europe with respect to developing an anti-Nazi, anti-Hitler alliance. Uh, it's to be noted... I, sorry, go on. It's to be noted that Garvey had a major debate at the 1929 convention of the UNIA in Kingston between a leading black communist from Suriname and himself. And the debate was race and class, which is more important. So that's further evidence of the, that, that fault line in the ideological uh, difference between nationalists and communists. I, I also wanted to add um, something about within the black community itself, because um, and the fault lines within the community, because it it very often was that um, you know well W D 
W.E.B. Du Bois, he was a communist, I, I believe. He's de definitely a socialist, but I believe he was a member of the Communist Party as well. That's later but, on, later on in his life. In the Garvey period, uh, 1920s, 30s, he was definitely an NAACP person. Right. It's a point if this that you have the ship to the Communist Party of the United States. Okay. Because uh, I know that there was this kind of... Uh, cruel put-down of the UNIA by the NAACP-type people, um, where they said that the UNIA stood, stood for the ugliest Negroes in America. Yes. Because, because of the, the skin, the, uh, the, the skin color, the, the facial features, these sorts of things. And, and that, does, that is a huge schism in black communities, Afro-American communities uh, around the world. And it is, it is very much related to color, class, and, and these sorts of things yes. also featured in, in it, I believe. And it also relates to the idea, the NAACP, of racial alliances and the role of whites in the NAACP, whereas within the Garvey movement, they were unapologetic with respect to their notion of black empowerment and black leadership. And, and it, it, was, it kind of was reflected later on in the, in the civil rights era between the Nation of Islam and the Martin Luther King and integrationists as well, wasn't it? Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, the same but sort of thing. That tension is, as you said, color comes into it, education comes into it, class enters into it. Education, because the boys is a have a German educated person, and mm -hmm. Gavi is what we call an autodidact, a basically a self-taught person. Um, within any society, if in in the world today, if you have a PhD from Harvard and you have an elementary school education from a British colony. You know, it's like cheese to chalk. Yeah. Um, you know, so there is that aspect. Gabby did not even have a high school education. And, and this is so and this is so amazing in terms of his achievement because the UNIA was started in Jamaica, correct? Yes, nineteen fourteen. Right. So it started in Jamaica. So, you know, in a colonial um, at that time, it would have been a backwater. And then he comes to New York and founds this, this organization that is submitting you know, a declaration uh, to, to the 1918 Peace Conference in Paris and mm -hmm. organizing these month-long um, you know, uh, conferences at, at stadiums in, in uh, Madison Square Garden. It's, it's incredible. Like, could you just describe... How how did this happen? How did this growth happen? And I'm sure, um, you know, W.E.B. Du Bois and uh, them would have been jealous of the success of the God movement at the time as well. There would have been this rivalry. So could you kind of illustrate that for us a little more? Well, you see, the success was preceded by a lot of false starts and failure. Um, and it was preceded also by the support of the West Indian 
community and West Indian migrants. But what Garvey did was not confine himself to his migrant community. He made sure to travel through, he did about 38 of the United States, meeting black leaders in their churches, in their communities, in their business place, ensuring that he was known and that he knew all of the black leaders. You'll see so many letters written by him to Du Bois because Du Bois was very famous. And Du Bois had visited Jamaica around 1911, 1912. And Garvey was anxious to meet him. Just as Garvey was anxious to meet Booker T. Washington. Uh, mm -hmm. But Booker T. died before Garvey got there uh, in 1916. So a lot of effort was put into knowing the African-American community. And at that time, there were very successful communities of African-American businesses, bankers, insurance, schools. And this had a big impact and influenced Garvey's vision as to what Black people could do under certain circumstances. The 1918, 19 uh, to 1921 upheavals and the attack by whites destroyed several black communities that had been successful. So that the, the Gave movement was uh, developed in a way which had full respect for the achievement of the African-American population. And somehow Gave was able to speak their language and appeal to them in ways which gave him that mass following. I've heard, I don't know if you have heard the boy speak, but the boy is a new, has a New England accent. Yes. Very similar to the educated West Indian accent. If you have mm -hmm. heard Sir Arthur Lewis speak, uh, mm -hmm. understand that. That's an audience that will reach educated people, but it, it does not have the passion that's necessary to motivate the ordinary person in the street or the capacity to express complex ideas in the English language in ways in which people understand precisely what is being said. Having mastery of the English language is something that needs analysis. Yes, and, and not only that, I mean, um, he... He spoke with a Jamaican accent still. I mean, not, not a very, very broad patois, but, but still, it, it was not an American accent he put on. It was recognizably West Indian. Patois in public. That's mm -hmm. part of the socialization. They made sure that they mastered the English language. So you, 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 you might find some vernacular or patois references in some of Garvey's speeches, but very few. So that's also a part of their formation. And again, this is, I have some debates with friends of mine with respect to his mastery of English language and his love for certain European forms. I have no problem with it, but people tend to reduce this to a colonial 
idea, but I don't necessarily agree with that. Right, right, and this is this is uh, part of the complexity, and I think it it really um, has a lot of relevance today with the with the reemergence of nationalism around the world. Because at, uh, on the one hand, while Garvey, you know, was you know, as you said, he he adored you know certain works of English, and he was you know in solidarity with the Irish and and the Indians and and others. So forth. Um, he, you know, he, he, you mentioned in the book how he supported sometimes certain white politicians over certain black politicians, yeah, yeah, and uh, and yeah. even when he came to Trinidad, he stayed with um, Cipriani, who yeah. was a, a white politician, although he fought for the lower classes. So you have that complexity on the one side, and at the same time, he's uh, he's a proud uh, racial purist. Um, uh, and and race first, you know, was was the sort of motto of the organization. And today, uh, when people look back on it, they and even then, uh, you know, they see it as racism. And and it is hard for people to understand, you know, how that could not be, you know, racist or reverse racism. They see his meeting with the KKK for example, and how he said, listen, give me an honest KKK person any day over, uh, you know, over a hypocritical white. Um, uh, How would you expand on that? Well, there are two aspects. One is that the notion of race purity, uh, as expressed by Garvey, was a rejection of the view that for black people to move up in the world, they had to mix with white people sexually. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is still a factor in populations where black people are, where a light skin has value and people mm-hmm. bleach and so on. So the, the view that you needed to water down yourself by virtue of marrying up, which means marrying light, marrying mm-hmm. white, that was a practice that was uh, common, especially among migrant educated people who were students at Oxford or in British universities, less so American universities because the racial barriers in the United States didn't allow that. But in England, Scotland, Ireland, you could People went to train in medicine or in law. Would do that. They come back with their white wives. It was up to my generation as a student in the 60s. This was commonplace among the intelligentsia and those who had traveled. So you're dealing with a with a debasement of blackness, uh, lowering of any value that is attached to being black. The stigmatization. So the notion of racial purity in that sense is different from the racial purity of the Nazis. The racial purity of the Nazis was based on notion of supremacy. Garvey's racial purity was based on a rejection of the notion that black people were inferior. So he's affirming our humanity using a language which would not be, I wouldn't want to use no, but I understand 
way what he is trying to express. With respect to the Ku Klux Klan, the Ku Klux Klan was not a minority group. It was at the heart of American democracy. It was in the White House. Mm -hmm. It was in the Congress. It was at the level of the state bodies. This was a part, it's been a part of the system. We are now better able to appreciate it with respect to the current president of the United States and the role that he is playing in giving some justification to groups that are really white supremacist groups. So Gavi sees through liberal white America in a way in which I think many of the middle-class blacks did not fully grasp. Yes. No, I, in terms of the movement he built in the States as well, I, I want you to give us an idea of the sheer breadth of what he was doing on the economic front and the cultural front in terms of uh, publications and in terms of political organization representing internationally. Could you just you know give us some examples of, of the incredible, incredible diversity of activity um, they were involved in? Well, those three areas, the economic area, I would say that uh, his initiatives in encouraging entrepreneurial activity meant that he paved the way for our understanding that political freedom that doesn't have an economic base is not going to endure. And therefore, the the encouragement of the Negro Factories Corporation, the encouragement of small businesses, medium-sized businesses, uh, that this this ought to be the mainstay of our community. The encouragement of education as a tool for social and racial advancement. The the development of shaping your own public perspective in the international sphere through your delegations, your representation at crucial moments in the world where decisions are being made with respect to colonies, as was being made after World War I, that you had to have a say, you had to participate, you had to have a position with respect to these matters. On the cultural side, a lot of people are not aware that um, he was very keen on film. And the UNIA in the United States in the mid-20s encouraged black filmmakers. Uh, he was very keen. He was himself a poet. The his collection of poems that he wrote in prison in Atlanta, uh, one of which his Keep Cool can be seen on YouTube and has been set to music uh, by jazz musicians, by hip-hop people, and it has been choreographed in dance by the late Rex Nettleford and others. There is a strong sense of Garvey of the importance of 
creative work and cultural expression. I have a criticism of Garvey in, in respect to that, in that the Mackay-Garvey uh, debates with respect to the role of the artist, Garvey tended to want to, I suppose like most politicians, to control what the image was, what was being projected. Whereas Claude Mackay, his fellow Jamaican, who was a prominent novelist, wanted freedom of expression to tell it as he saw it, uh, whereas Garvey felt that you didn't want to show up the seamy side of black life. Yeah. So you get those tensions. But Garvey was responsible for about four, uh, four to five different plays that were done in Jamaica at a mini stadium known as Everest Park. And these plays were attended by hundreds of people. And Everest Park was also a venue for boxing because Garvey was a big fan of boxers and boxing. And he had boxers from Haiti, from Cuba, boxing Jamaica, boxing, boxing with Jamaicans uh, here in Kingston. And he was also a big fan of cricket. As a young man, he played cricket, and he was a big fan of the emergence of the great West Indian batsman, George Headley. So there is, uh, there is, Gavi is a modern person and a person also with a vision. And whilst the vision was based on the liberation of Africa, he also saw the importance of having a Caribbean federal movement. And he worked with the Grenadian T.A. Marichaux with respect to keeping the vision of a federal later independent West Indies alive. So the regional, there's a regional dimension to Gabi. And in all the uh, Caribbean territories, there were Gabi movements. And again, we have studied the 1935, 38 period, 37 in Trinidad movement. But a lot of people haven't examined the Gaviats who played important roles in those movements. Just as with the civil rights movement, with the Black Power movement, the antecedents were in the activists of the UNIA. So, again, um, an extraordinary human being uh, who had a vision of the possibility of colonized people breaking out and taking their place in the modern world. Yeah, because it was really like he was creating a... a a global civilization. It, it, it was everything. It was. It was. It was not just political or civil rights. So it was uh, economic. It was cultural. It was. It, it took on every single sort of facet of human existence. I mean, he, he was a man of, of tremendous uh, uh, vision and, and drive. And, and and so while he was having that success, this is what I'd like you to elaborate on next. Um, he was being persecuted re- relentlessly 
sometimes by uh, his own, uh, you know, uh, colleagues in in the broader movement, let's say like W.E.B. Du Bois and the NAACP, but then also by the United States government as well, uh, which eventually led to his deportation. Uh, so why don't you just yeah, expand well, that for us a little? Yeah, well, the, the role of the United States was pivotal in uh, securing Gabby's imprisonment through what is really a false charge that he used the mail to defraud. And I have read the court transcripts, and uh, lawyers have also taken that case into account. And the evidence does not support the view that Garvey himself was using the mail to defraud. In fact, the envelope that they brought into evidence did not have anything in it that would support the view that Garvey was using the mail to defraud. There are other charges prior to that that had been brought against him with respect to income tax, with respect to uh, his return to the United States after he left Jamaica uh, in 1921 when he made a major trip in the Caribbean and so on. Assassination attempt too, correct? Yes. The intelligence operation against Garvey was conducted by a Jamaican who Mm -hmm. penetrated the movement, got close to him. So the emergence of black intelligence officers in the U.S. system is traced to the Garvey movement. And this has been documented by people who studied the history of the Bureau of Investigation and the role of J. Edgar Hoover. But not to be underestimated is the role of the British and the French colonial people who prevented the freedom of movement of Garvey as well as it prohibited the distribution of his newspapers. Yes. The other factor that I'd like to identify is what Garvey called internal prejudices, that black people had internal prejudices which contributed to their wanting to shut out movements like his because they were colonized. They had a mentality that supported colonialism. So there was a strong, uh, what I've referred to as black monarchism in every single Caribbean country. Masses of people believed in the British sovereign and in the goodness of that monarchy. So this internal prejudice against yourself uh, plays, in my view, as important a role as the external power of either the United States or Britain or France or any other colonial power. Yeah, it was was remarkable too. I mean, speaking about some of the schisms and divisions of the time, it was such a a time of of ferment and different types of organizations. So we mentioned the communists. You have the sort of liberal NAACP, the integrationist, uh, you know, Garvey with the nationalists. And then there was this other type of... um, these religious millenarian type of organizations mm-hmm. um, like uh, um, Father Divine, 
later on the nation of Islam, but but you um, had uh, other sort of kind of, uh, I guess you could call them cults or, or, or religious-based things where, where the leaders were supposed to have divine powers. Mm-hmm. And even even within his movement itself, people yeah. were ascribing divine powers to him. But Garvey did not want that to be part of it. Could, could you um, elaborate on that? Yeah, that? This is an important aspect because um, religious movements have always been a part of black movement, whether all of the slave revolts have had a religious, spiritual base, Haitian revolution as well. So that the non-material, spiritual conception of political struggle has had an impact on the movement. And Garvey had to deal with this issue. And when he dealt with it by saying, that people were free to embrace whatever religious perspectives that they wanted. The movement had to be multi-religious. People who supported Islam, people who supported Christianity, people who supported neither of these two. You, because you, if you if you built uh, the movement around a religious core, you, uh, core, then you automatically exclude those who don't subscribe to your religious point of view. So this goes back to his universal idea, to his race idea. You bring together people on the basis of a program. The Declaration of Rights of 1920, his political program with respect to the Jamaican politics of 1929, 1930. So the question is, what are the core ideas around which you are bringing people together. Religion does enter into it, but is not, it is not the defining quality of the Gavi movement or of Gavi's thinking. You know, I, I want to just um, touch on a, a point you raised in the biography uh, that was very interesting. I mean, there's a lot of interesting points that we could go on and on. Gavi's such a fascinating person. But um, when he was in jail, uh, there was a movement to free Garvey, and um, many, you know, white, uh, many white people f- from American, uh, you know, radicals, uh, you know, um, like from the American communists to Anglo-Saxon clubs, which were sort of white nationalists, if you want to put it that way, uh, or white supremacist organizations, were also uh, supporting that Garvey be freed. So it's very uh, interesting. C- could you elaborate on that a bit? Well, I think that the diversity of people who were seek- seeking his freedom recognized the injustice. One should also take into account that there was effective mobilization among these groups, that the trial had been unfair, had been unjust. Uh, Anglo-Saxon groups were supportive of Gavi because of they felt that their campaign to get blacks out of the United States was consistent with Gavi's conception of Africa as the homeland to which blacks should go. Uh, the communists themselves who were under enormous pressure 
political pressure, they, ident they, they identified and respected the campaign that was being waged by UNI activists because they themselves wanted the support that Garvey had. So I think there was a, a coincidence of the interests of different tendencies, different groups coalescing around the freeing of Garvey. And even the Communist International came out in support of the freeing, the campaign to free Garvey. Right, right. Now, after he was deported from the United... Well, and, and Calvin Coolidge actually did um, free him after two and two years and nine months, I believe it was, correct? Yes. Right. So, so, he, so the campaign was actually successful. But he was deported and he went back to Jamaica. And, um, and I think, well, so we witnessed at this time... The UNI basically dies after he goes, which is something of interest because it had millions of people. But uh, but I suppose um, we, we can talk about that. Maybe it has to do with the restrictions of travel that the British put in as well. But then he did his work in Jamaica. Then he went to um, England where he eventually uh, died of a stroke, I believe it was. So uh, could you could you just sort of um, uh, well, illustrate that part? Because, because one of the interesting things, yeah. um, I wouldn't necessarily agree that the movement died. Right. The political situation changed, particularly in the 1930s, on two counts. One was the depression and the impact and the deportation of thousands of workers from Cuba, Central America, back to the Caribbean, and people coming back from the United States also. But the second factor had to do with the Italian invasion of Ethiopia. And new movements started to develop around that point. It was also the period of the labor uprisings, not only in the Caribbean, but in Africa as well. And the organizational forms of the 1920s were no longer adequate to deal with the new challenges because the anti-colonial movements were going more in the direction of trade unions, political parties, political sovereignty, uh, independence, and new vehicles such as political, the political party that Garvey formed, the People's Political Party, had to be created. Well, I, I, I don't want to, um, you know, put you on the spot here, but I, I kind of will, <laughs> in a sense. This is, I mean, the NAACP, for example, mm -hmm. stuck around to today you know, so it's uh, what it's like 120 years now, almost right, 119 or something, and um, so they were able to to withstand all the changes. What well, What do you think? Uh, I, I mean, you're, you, and you're absolutely right that it was Garveyites that that were in the labor movement. It was Garveyites that were in the independence movement. It was Garveyites that 
that were pushing um, the civil rights movement in the 50s and 60s and, uh, and so forth. So certainly Garvey had, had his influence there, but the UNIA as an organization, however, did not have the longevity that the NAACP did. I, I mean, would you care to speculate on that? It's, I just find it an interesting question. Yes, well, that is true. The NAACP has continued. Uh, there was a social base for it in the civil rights movement, gave it in, reinvigorated uh, the idea of civic freedoms and integration. It had the support of considerable uh, numbers of people drawn from the white liberal establishment. Mm -hmm. Gabe did not have that kind of injection into his movement. So the, the notion of separatism would have weakened his capacity, the capacity of the movements that came after his movement in the 1940s and 50s, when another war shifted the dynamics of power. To answer your question fully, you have to ask, what did the Garveyites do? What did his widow, Amy Jakes Garvey, do in Jamaica? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the Garveyites in Jamaica in the 19th, 30s and 1940s separated themselves into one group from the grassroots supporting the Bustamante unions and the Jamaica Labour Party led by Alexander Bustamante and the middle class educated Garveyites led I would say by Amy Jakes Garvey went into the People's National Party which was formed by Norman Manley, who was a lawyer, road scholar, and intellectual. So you got that kind of bifurcation. UNIA, for several reasons, did not survive Garvey's removal from Jamaica or his decision to leave Jamaica in 1935. And as new political needs and possibilities emerged. Uh, if Gabby had been here, we don't know what would have happened, but I think inevitably he would have had to develop and reform the People's Political Party if he was to be relevant in the 1930s and 1940s. Amy Jakes Gabby, in addition to supporting the People's National Party, had an independent structure called African Studies Circle, in which she was uh, collaborated with uh, W.E.B. Du Bois in putting forward in the post-World War II years a plan for the future of the colonial peoples as part of the discussion in the period after World War II. And with the way oh, that's interesting. I didn't know she collaborated. Yes, she collaborated with. Uh, she's she's an astute political person, not known uh, and underrated political mind. Uh, without which, I think Gabby would be less known. Uh, 
uh, particularly in his, in his late, later years and in relation to her consistency in supporting his legacy, even when yeah. their personal relationship was on the rocks. So he left Jamaica to go and spent his final years in England. Yes. Right? Um, and that was, why did he leave in 35? Was it before the, the labor unrest started? Was it after? And did the Abyssinian invasion have anything to do with it in that no, year? The Abyssinian invasion had nothing to do with his departure, I think. Uh, the main factor is that he felt Economically, his businesses and ventures, he found himself in great debt. He found himself, he had been serving on the Kingston and St. Andrew Corporation, local government, where he was a representative of a working class community. However, he was disappointed in the response of the Jamaican population to his efforts. And he was broke. He therefore felt that in order to keep the rest of the organization together, it would best to be to relocate to London, which was the heart of the empire anyhow, and from which he could be more effective since he could no longer travel to the United States. He had tried to get back into the U.S. from uh, Canada. That failed. So the London departure, exile, his final exile, so to speak, was due to political, economic failures in Jamaica and the understanding that to be more effective, as was the case with Sarah James and George Padmore in particular, you had to go to the central, the heart, the political heart of the empire, which was London. And he did make a lot of connections with uh, young African nationalists and future independence leaders and, and so forth when he was in London. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, it's it's very interesting. By that time, I, I know the UNIA had many conferences, international conferences. Uh, when was the last one? They had some conferences in 1937 in okay. Uh That is, I recall that as being the, the final uh, set of what are called regional conferences. Okay. And, and he was... Um, he was um, deported from the United States in 27, was it? 1927? Right. So it continued for, so the conferences continued for even 10 years after. But uh, do you know what the membership was like at, at that time? Did it fall drastically? It had fallen considerably Yeah. In the 1920s. Um, mm-hmm. Because again, other organizations had emerged, you mentioned some, the Father Divine Movement, new movements had evolved, uh, Gaviites had split up. Um, there were the, Gavi wanted to bring back the headquarters to Kingston, Jamaica, but the American Gaviites in the main said, no, 
it had to remain in the United States. And there was a huge division over that. Uh, in the book that you said you're going to review, Global Garvisms by Stephen, mm-hmm. Ronald Stevens and Adam Ewing, they explore these fissures of the movement in the 1920s, 1930s, 40s, and how the different forms that the change, the changes in the UNIA took in different parts of the world. And you will see there evidence of what I call the mutation of the UNIA uh, into a range of different organizations in different parts of the world, which meant that the Gavi message was being carried, but not in the way that Gavi had done it in the heyday of the 1920s. All right. Okay. Well, we've had a, a really great discussion about uh, Gavi and, and your biography of him, and we could go on and on because there's so many fascinating things about him. But if I was to ask you to sum up the importance of Gavi and his place in history, uh, in Jamaica, in the U.S., in in world, you know, in, in world history, all of these levels, how, how would you try to uh, sum it up uh, briefly? Well. Gavi is a phenomenal thinker, organizer, and visionary who defied the odds in the colonial period and developed a international organization and affected the way we think about ourselves and our possibilities. That is what I think Gavi has meant for so many people uh, in the world today. And uh, his writings and so much of it still not known to so many people. Uh, When you consult it, you are really amazed that he had such a grasp of the modern world and the possibilities that we have to reshape that world in our own interest. Well, thank you very much, Rupert. It was a pleasure talking to you about your book. Well, thank you very much for having me, Kirk. That's all for New Books in Politics this week. If you like this, remember to check out my other podcast, Independent Thought and Freedom, and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Also, If you are an academic that wants to get heard nationally, check out my free training at becomeapublicintellectual.com. Thanks, and see you next week.